Well, I have a message tonight for you that are on the front two rows. And uh, you might like to know, for what it's worth, I have never preached this sermon before. I had something uh, two or three weeks ago that I thought would be very fitting for this. And then day before yesterday, I just lost all thought of that. And I came up with something altogether different. I've never preached this before. And um, it is called Embracing the Stigma. And that's for you on the front two rows. I want you to know that I'm preaching to you. All others you can eavesdrop. And if the Lord uses this for you, good. But this is for them. So I want to read to you one verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to rest upon every mind here, especially these two rows. These students have come through I-B-I-O-L, and I wanted to have a word just for them. And I believe that's exactly what you've given me. I pray that you will use it. Help me to be very, very clear, very, very simple. May it be just what they need. May it be even life-changing. And may this bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You, might, you may find this a rather strange subject, embracing the stigma, embracing it, not just welcoming it, hugging it. Do you realize what a stigma is? It is what is offensive. It is what causes resentment or embarrassment. I think the essence of the word stigma is embarrassment. We all shun from anything that will embarrass us. We preserve our self-esteem. We all have fragile egos. We want to be respected. And when you take on a stigma, that's going to do one thing. It is going possibly, if not certainly, hurt your reputation. Now, the word stigma is a pure Greek word. Uh, it's used in Galatians 6, 17, when Paul said, I bear in my body the marks, the stigmata of the Lord Jesus. In ancient Hellenistic literature, it was a tattoo on the body uh, put on runaway slaves so that people would recognize them, so they would be stigmatized. Well, Paul says, I will welcome that. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And he was unashamed of the stigma. Now, there are other words that mean much the same thing. 
take Acts chapter 5, verse 41. You talk about having a verse to grip you. For some reason, here is a verse that has gripped me to the extent that sometimes I cannot read this verse without coming to tears. It says that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Imagine that. They couldn't believe they had been so privileged that they get to suffer for the shame of the name. It also means the word offense. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul used the phrase, if you take on circumcision and you go back to the law, the offense of the cross is abolished. Uh, Here's what he is saying that for. If the offense of the cross ceases, it means the gospel was abandoned and there is consequently no power. Why is this an important word? Well, you know, seeker-friendly people, and that's been the code word for 20 years or more. There are churches that are ostensibly what they call seeker-friendly. And what this does is to remove the offense. Uh, And I can understand why people would want to be able to reach everybody. Paul said, I'm all things to all men that I by all means may win some. So if that is what is meant by being seeker-friendly, fine, I'll accept that. But what often happens, and I'm sorry, has happened, is that the seeker-friendly churches have removed the offense so that they won't offend people. They think more people will come to church. They think more will be there if there's nothing offensive. But here's what happens. The moment you remove the offense, in doing so, they remove the power that will convert a person to Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what is most offensive at all about the Christian faith? It is that the Son of God, God's one and only Son, would be crucified. That he would actually endure crucifixion. Now, it was the most offensive thing of all. You see, what made the crucifixion so horrible was not only the physical pain, but the stigma, the offense, uh, because only the scum of the earth got crucified. And if you were chosen for crucifixion, nobody felt sorry for you. You're getting what you deserve. And, uh, and imagine now, Jesus is crucified. He's treated like the scum of the earth. I can imagine how Paul, if he were like some today, would say, now I'm going to go to Corinth. Would somebody tell me about Corinth? What do I need to preach in order to reach the people of Corinth? And he brings in a public relations firm. And they say to him, well, you know about Corinth. It was the business center of the, of the world. And business people, prestigious people, would come to Corinth. So whatever you do, you want to say things that will give dignity and will show that, the, that there's nothing offensive about the Christian faith. 
Well, Paul would say, I'll tell you what, if that's the case, I know what I'm going to preach when I get to Corinth. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he said, before I came, I made a decision. I calculated, I put it in the computer that I would know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. They would say, oh, please, Paul, don't try that. If you want to reach the people of Corinth, you're going to put everybody off. Well, Paul's reply is, the only way they're going to be saved is if the Holy Spirit converts them. So he has to say, what can I preach that will cause the Holy Spirit to kick in? Because if I preach something that the Holy Spirit will not own, that I could just preach for weeks and months. I don't want that. I want to see them converted. And so Paul knew there was one way that would guarantee the Holy Spirit will get involved in the message, and that is to preach the most offensive thing you can do. Paul embraced the stigma when he went to Corinth. Well, the point of my talk today to you young people in the front row what is so repulsive or offensive uh, to some, you need to embrace and wear it with dignity. Here's what Paul said. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ or of me, his prisoner. It's just one thing. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul actually had the audacity to say, don't be ashamed of me. You know, Timothy might say, well, I, I, I'll uphold the gospel, but Paul, I mean, you're in prison, and that's not going to impress anybody. And Timothy might have wanted to distance himself from a man that's in prison. So Paul, though, says, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me. Where does this come in? Does there come a time when we are to be unashamed of other Christians. You see, the most natural thing in the world, if you're looking for a church, is to find a church where well-connected people go, educated people, cultured people, dignified people. And to go to a church like that is not offensive. And there are those, when they look for a church, want to be sure that where they are seen and where it is known that they attend would be a church where upmarket people, well-connected people go. Now, here's the question I ask. Are you willing, you people that are graduating, and congratulations for that, but are you willing to embrace what is so offensive, or do you avoid it? And so, as I said, this is a message I think is very important. We're living in a seeker-friendly generation when it comes to the Christian faith. The trend of the church in our day is to destigmatize the gospel. That means to rob the gospel of anything that offenses, offends people, anything that's offensive, because we don't want 
to offend people. We hope that they will come back and hear us. And if we say something offensive, well, uh, we're going to lose them. Do you know what? We've been trying this for a generation, hoping that if we take the offense out, they're going to come in droves. The opposite is the case. Church attendance is lower than ever. I just remember something now as I spoke. A year or so after I came to Westminster Chapel, a couple who would often bring non-Christians to church brought a friend of theirs who was a neighbor to hear me preach. I didn't know they were out there, but I just preached what I do all the time, that the only way to be saved is through the blood of Jesus, and those who are lost go to hell, everlasting punishment. And that's what I preached. Well, <laughs> I find out later that when I finished preaching, and they would sit down after you give the benediction, they turned to their neighbor friend and said, would you like to go in the back halls for a cup of coffee? And they told me she wouldn't speak to them. She was so livid. She says, no, I want to go home now. And they could see that uh, it wasn't going down too well. And all the way home, they said, you know, I don't think Dr. Kendall was at his best tonight. And uh, uh, I can understand how you feel. And, uh, you know, we're sorry that you were offended. She gets out of the car. They never expect to see her again. Before the end of the week, she phoned this couple and said, you know, I think maybe I'll go back one more time. <laughs> you sure? Yes. She came back the following Sunday night. I, I know none of this for weeks. And on that night, she was converted. But it started out with her being so offended. The problem is we are afraid to offend. I don't know whether we have any visitors here or not. Maybe you're all the same people that come every week. But if you're a visitor, you might find this a little bit offensive. I don't panic when people don't like it when I preach because I just remember that the only way they're going to be saved is if the Holy Spirit applies a word and will not let them go. And we may not see your conversion today or tomorrow, but it's a matter of time. God has a way of reaching His own. Amen. So what is needed? You people that have gone through IBIOL is for you to embrace the stigma and not be ashamed of it. There is a fringe benefit. You want me to tell you what it is? Don't know whether this will mean a lot to you, but it sure means a lot to me. Do you want to know what the benefit is? An increased anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's what you get. Well, three things tonight. Number one, embracing the stigma. This verse that I referred to, Acts 5.41, here's what is going on. Peter and John are called 
before the Sanhedrin. That was the official Jewish court, and, and Judaism was reigning, so to speak. Although they were under the Romans, uh, the Romans let them do their religious bit. And Peter and John had offended the Sanhedrin because they preached the resurrection of Jesus. Well, these high muckety-mucks in Jerusalem called them in on the council and said, we forbid you to preach in this name. And then to make sure they didn't, they beat them. And they got out the straps and whipped them till the blood ran. And now you can imagine that inside the Sanhedrin, these dignified Pharisees are saying, well, I guess we showed them. We won't be bothered with them anymore. They could not have known that when Peter and John left the council, listen to these words, when they departed from the council, they couldn't believe their luck that they got to suffer for the shame of his name. It says they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy. You get to do it. Only those who get to do it. They couldn't believe it. You see, you've got to remember something. Just a few weeks before, they all forsook Jesus. All of them. Matthew 26, 56, they all forsook him. And Peter, in particular, denied knowing Jesus. And then when he heard the crowing of the rooster, Peter remembered there was Jesus and they locked eyes. And we're told Peter went out and wept bitterly. He couldn't believe after being with Jesus for those three years that in the showdown, he actually denies even knowing him. And he's so ashamed. And I can imagine that Peter was saying, Oh Lord, will you give me one more chance? One more chance to show that I'm not ashamed. I won't fail you this time. And he got another chance. And now he's called before the Sanhedrin. And we're told what happened. They called in the apostles and they were flogged. Ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. And that's when Peter and John, as they left the council... They were so happy. They were so happy. God gave us another chance. I wonder, anybody here in this place, Amen. you have let the Lord down? You didn't want people to know you were a Christian. You didn't want people to know you actually believe the Bible. And you were so careful because you wanted your reputation to be intact. And then you realize you let the Lord down. And maybe in this message tonight, the Lord is speaking to you. And he says, I'm giving you another chance. This time, don't be ashamed. And that's Paul's word. And the day will come that you will Rejoice in the stigma because this is the way you get to know the Lord better.
Do you want to get to know the Lord better? You know, there are two ways this can happen. One is that you have somebody lay hands on you. That can happen. And, and a transfer of anointing. The other way is uh, to suffer. Suppose I were to give an altar call. We're going to pray tonight for a greater anointing on everybody here. All those who want the laying on of hands, will you come down this aisle? And those who want the suffering and being flogged and losing your reputation, come down this aisle. I wonder if anybody would come down this aisle. I'll tell you something, just between you and me. I have said for years and years and years that I want more than anything in the world a greater anointing. Now, a lot of people say, oh, what a godly man. I'm not so sure that that's even a godly request. I just want it more than anything. I'll do anything to get it. And I have had everybody in the world pray for me. From Martin Lloyd-Jones to Billy Graham to Rodney Howard Brown to all those who lay hands on people. It's done me no harm, but I don't know of any one of them where I felt, oh, I've got anointing now. The way my anointing, for what it's worth, has emerged is by willing to let my reputation go to nothing. And do things where people said, can't believe R.T. Kendall would do that. Be seen with people like that. But you see, that's the way it happens. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And so when you get a chance to embrace the stigma, take it. Take it with both hands. But I want to talk for a moment about evading the stigma. Do you know... This same Peter, I'm sorry, you need to know this. If you've never heard this before, this same Peter really showed himself not to be a very nice follower of Jesus. We're told in Galatians chapter 2, and this is what Paul said. When Peter came to Antioch, Peter, same one that denied the Lord, same one who was rejoicing. To, for the suffering of the disgrace of Jesus' name. But now, here's the same Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when these people from James arrived, that means James, half-brother of Jesus, and, and they were deep into the law, and, and they hadn't quite seen the light that, you know, there's no more law. And they were Judaizers, and they followed Paul wherever he could, they could find him to underestimate what Paul did, or get the people to say, this is no good. They would fish in the Christian pond, for anybody that Paul had converted. And these people would go straight to them and undermine what Paul taught. And he says, even Peter, listen to this. When certain man came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. 
But when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That means those Judaizers. That's the name we give them. Uh, professing Christians that wanted to bring the faith of Christ back under the law. You see, what, what's happening here? Peter wanted to avoid the stigma. The stigma in this case is not Jesus directly. But it's like when Paul said to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. You see, there is a terp of certain type of Christian that we don't mind being associated with. But then there are some where they carry such a stigma we don't want to be associated with. Uh, and uh, the stigma of fellow believers in the gospel, uh, it's the same thing. Are those Christians that you know, you don't want to be seen with them because they won't help your reputation any? I don't know whether you've ever heard of Heidi Baker. I was with her two weeks ago in Mozambique. It's, a, it's an amazing story. But she was being uh, supported by a very, very prestigious church in New York City. But she did something that they didn't want her to do. She slipped into Toronto when the Toronto blessing, so-called, was at its height and she just wanted to investigate it. And she decides to let somebody pray for her. They pray for her, and she falls to the floor. And for three hours, for three hours, she doesn't move. No one was sure what was happening. But as in those three hours, she was getting blessed with the oil of the Holy Spirit. When she came out of that, she shouted and ran and everybody could see she was really touched by this. When the New York church found out about it, they dropped her, wouldn't support her anymore. She goes back to Mozambique where she'd just barely begun, where she's a nobody, with the new anointing. She's now founded 13,000 churches in Mozambique. She now feeds 5,000 poor people every day, poor people of Mozambique. She educates 3,500 students a day, grades 1 to 12, secular education, just teaching them. And I was there last week and talked to a lady right next to me who, because I asked her, have you seen anything unusual? Who just two weeks before, maybe it was a week before, prayed for a dead child, dead for two hours. They were waiting for the imam. They were Muslims. They were wrapping the little child in sheets and getting his burial ready. When this girl prays for this child and in a few minutes, his fingers moved. She said rigor mortis had set in. She said it was stiff as she could be. And fingers move. Arms move. He's raised from the dead. And the next week she went to see him. He was running around the house. That kind of thing. Now, here's my point. 
Whenever we evade the stigma, you are unwittingly kissing goodbye the way God may choose to give you a greater anointing. Years ago, when I was preaching through the life of David, and I never will forget the evening I was preaching on the time when David finally got the Ark of the Covenant into the temple because he'd been trying uh, for a long time and, and it was hard to do because the people that abused the Ark by touching it were struck dead. And David was afraid he was never going to get the Ark into the temple, but they found out they had not done it in the biblical way and they carried the Ark in a certain way, but they were all holding their breath. And when they saw that this time they were going to get the Ark to come into the temple, David was so happy. In fact, we're told, here's what he said. He danced before the Lord. He danced and leapt and jumped up and down because he was so happy about getting the ark in. But his wife, Michal, despised him in her heart. And when David gets home, Michal says to David, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls and the girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. I remember calling my sermon that night, Finding Your Friends. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from this house when he appointed me ruler over the people's, uh, Lord's people in Israel. He said, listen to this, I will celebrate before the Lord and if you're prepared for this, I will even become more undignified than this. And I'll be glad to be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor. David had found his real friends. It wasn't his wife who was happy for him to be dressed in royal robes. But when he lost his dignity... And so, tonight, before the sermon, I turned to Matt Redman, who's here tonight. I said, Matt, I showed him this verse. Are you the one that wrote this song, I will become even more undignified than this? He said, yeah, that was 20 years ago. Matt, you couldn't have known that I got our worship leader at the chapel to sing it almost every week. I didn't care what they said. And the fact that David, king, could say, I'll become even more undignified than this. Instead of and being intimidated, and we want you to start showing dignity. You're a king. No. Here's the thing. The stigma. Willing to be embarrassed by it. Uh, some of you will recall I've told this, but I don't know who here heard it. When we had been at Westminster 23 years, I began to think, what am I going to do? How long am I going to stay here? 
I could still be there now. If I'd, if I'd stayed, I would have been there now. Good land, almost 40 years, 38. But I thought 25 years seems about right. I guess I did the right thing then. I've thought about it. Maybe I shouldn't have, but 25 years, I'll call it quits. But I thought, what am I going to do? I go back to America. Nobody's heard of me over there. I know what I'll do. I'll just fish 25 hours a day. I love to fish. I'm a fisherman. And that's what I'll do. And I, I, I thought, we'll have enough Social Security from England and a little pension plan. I will fish. In that moment, I don't say it was an audible voice, but it was as, it was as clear as if it were. I heard these words. Your ministry in America will be to charismatics. I said, oh no. <laughs> Please. I don't want to be seen as a charismatic. I don't want to be around them. They give me the creeps. I, I, I'm always, uh, feel like a fish out of water when I'm with them. It turned out that 80% of my invitations I've been to Charismatics, and I get a letter every two weeks. Is it true that you endorsed the Toronto blessing? Yep. And I've had a lot of people cancel me, and some of the best invitations canceled. But who cares? I will be more undignified than this. This stigma. This is what matters, and I'm saying to you, Though it costs you your reputation, though it costs you your job, though it costs you friends, embrace the stigma. Last point. Evangelizing with the stigma. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I wonder how many today could say those very words and you put them under a lie detector and find out are they really unashamed of the gospel you know I watch Christian television once in a while to find someone who preaches the gospel on Christian television more so it's hard in America because here in Britain they're cleaning it up by the way it's, it's going to be a different network uh, but particularly in America, to find someone who preaches the gospel, it's like looking for a needle in the haystack. It's all stuff about send in your requests and I'll send you anointed cloth and you'll be driving a Bentley in two weeks and stuff like that. You get the feeling they are ashamed of the gospel. You see, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He, he might have said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the kingdom. Because that, that's a phrase they use today, gospel of the kingdom. It kind of destigmatizes gospel, gospel of the kingdom. You bring in signs and wonders and miracles, and people get excited about that. But that's not what he said. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Full stop. And then he said, for it is the power of God for salvation. He might have said, it's the power of God for healing. Paul believed in healing, but that's not what he said. He might have said it's the power of God for signs and wonders. Paul believed in signs and wonders, 
But that's not what he said. He said it's the power of God for salvation. And you see, this is what he's unashamed of. The message that God sent his son into the world. Jesus Christ, the God-man. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was made flesh. Jesus was man as though he were not God. He was God as though he were not man. He's the God-man. 33 years of age. They nail his hands into a slab of wood, hoisted it up in the air, dropped it in a hole in the ground. The message is, all who look to Jesus Christ, his shed blood, and give up any hope of getting into heaven by their good works, those who are willing to trust the blood plus nothing, will go to heaven when they die. He says, I'm not ashamed of that. And then there's one other thing he added. He says two verses later, for... The Greek word is gar, for some reason, not in the NIV, should be, but it's just not there. The ESV's got it. King James has got it. It says, for, that means because, because, and it's getting ready to tell you why people need to be saved. In my last few minutes, I'm going to ask you a question. Why do you think people need to be saved? If we were to pass out a sheet of paper and everybody writes down on the sheet of paper, why do you think your neighbor should be saved? Why do you think your loved one should be saved? What would you write down? What comes to your mind? What would you think to say? Would you say, well, it'll help your marriage. Don't count on it. 50% of Christian marriages end up in divorce. So you can't say that, does it? Oh, here is one who says, if there were no heaven and there were no hell, I'd still be a Christian. Do you know what Paul would say of that? He said, if in this life only we have hope, we're to be pitied. We're to be pitied. How would you like to hear Paul's testimony, what Christianity has done for him? You know, they'll have somebody stand up at an evangelistic rally and and tell them what's happened to me since I've been a Christian. You want to hear Paul's testimony? Here's what he would say. Here's what Christianity's done for me. He said, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. A day and a night I spent at the open sea. I was shipwrecked. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. He said, I've labored, toiled, gone without sleep. I've known hunger, gone without food, been cold and naked. That's his testimony. How many of you think want to sign up? Oh, good. I want to get in the queue. I want to be a Christian too. But you see, Paul's not trying to embrace you so that you will like what he preaches. This is why I'm emphasizing this word. The Greek word is gar, for, because, because 
Paul now tells you why you need to talk to your neighbors, why you need to pray for your loved ones. He said, because the wrath of God is revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men. And it goes on and on. It's because of the wrath of God. He will have none of this. Oh, you'll be better off. You'll be happier. The man that used to get us tickets to Center Court, Wimbledon, my first convert at Westminster Chapel, he was a Los Angeles Jew, gloriously saved. He told me after he'd been saved two years, this is his testimony. Before I became a Christian, I was a happy man. <laughs> How's that for a testimony? You say, well, then why, why, why become a Christian? Do you not get it? It's because there's a heaven. It's because there's a hell. This is the reason. And it is the most offensive message I know. There's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to make it go down easier. That, pure and simple, is the bottom line. In fact, Martin Luther called John 3.16 the Bible in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. That means not go to hell, but have everlasting life. And that is why Jesus died on the cross. Well, here's the irony. When you embrace the stigma, you are promised that you will never be ashamed. You see, the embarrassment, the embarrassment, it's okay. You may lose your reputation. They may think you're off your head. But what comes is an intimacy with the person of Jesus. You get to know Him. And you will know that you're in touch with the true God, the God of the Bible. So, says Paul, Romans 10, verse 11, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. In fact, 1 John 2, 28 says, you can be unashamed at His coming. Hebrews 2, 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. But when you are unashamed of him and you embrace the stigma, the reward is incalculable. 